when Dave asked me to preach uh, probably over a month ago, God just put this message on my heart and I've woken up basically every morning just preaching it. So it's going to be interesting to see what comes out in this service. It's going to get a bit awkward and that's okay. It's going to be moments where we're a bit uncomfortable and that's okay as well. So what I want to say is just at the start, some of the stuff we're going to talk about, we're talking about Numbers chapter 25, which if you saw that in the newsletter and looked it up, you'll be going, what is he thinking? Because it's not a passage I've heard preached on ever before, but it's a passage that I think is timely for us today. And so with that, there's going to be some adult themes. We're going to be talking about certain things to do with sexual immorality, to do with pornography. And just wanted to give a heads up for parents of kids that they would rather them not in here while we talk about these things. That's fine, won't be offended. There's going to be some activities up on the oval. It's not a drop your kid off and run away thing. It's, a, you, uh, it's, it's not supervised, essentially, but there's some activities to do should you so desire. Um, I'm going to start off with this awkwardness by just having an awkward moment of silence, just to make everyone feel nice and uncomfortable. You can close your eyes if you want, or half open them and make it even more awkward. It's good. You're doing well. And while we do that, let's just all pray, because I'd, I'd really value your prayers, because it's, um, if it's not God, then what's the point of it, hey? Holy Spirit, we just invite you here to be amongst us now. We just pray that you would make your presence known. Lord, those of us that have come with other things on our minds and our hearts, that you would just put that to the side. That we would have ears to hear you speak. That we would have hearts that would receive it. Have your way now, Lord, we ask. In Jesus' holy name. Amen. When I was preparing for this, I came across fantastic spoken word poem. I'm going to ask my brother Sam to come up and share that with us by way of introduction to what we're going to be talking about today. Do we have a... Thanks, mate. How are you, church? Hey? Uh, this may turn into a bit of a rap. I have been known to do that, so <laughs> I'll try not to do that today. Okay. All right. <clears throat> People triumphant, the fact that slavery is dead, but the last time I checked it, it just changed the clothes instead. And so casinos, malls, strip clubs, looking like modern-day temples, acting like we're self-sufficient, so we make ourselves central. But we're slaves to things, possessions and screens, slaves to money, which is why no one lives within their means. Broken, hopeless, spiritually homeless, but we keep on going with lies as if no one seems to notice. How is that working for you? You satisfied, bro? You got joy? How does it feel chasing stuff that's always a little faster than you? How come the image you used to stare at years ago doesn't even register anymore? I mean, the biggest lie in the world is I'll be satisfied if I have just a little more. So we're addicted to sex. We're addicted 
to power. We call ourselves men, but really we're just cowards. Because the apple looks sweet, but then it turns sour. How come every time we buy into an idol, we're the ones that get devoured? I mean, you say you're not a slave, but there is something to chew. You ever, why, you ever wondered why pictures of naked girls got so much power over you? Well, here's a question. What if kids acted realistic about what they wanted to be when they grew up? So at birth, they show up and say, hey, mum, at the age of 11, I want to become a slave. I want to make porn my slave master and then die in that grave. And by 16, I want to be so wrapped up in what other people say about me in school that I'll do anything just once for them to tell me I'm cool. And by college, I want to worship at the altar of sex, not care about treating a girl right, just caring about what girl is next. And then I'll graduate, get married and get a job and start to save, treat my job like my wife and treat my wife like my slave. And then have some pretty trophy kids and live in pretty trophy bliss. But make sure my kids know that if Sports Center comes on, they need to quickly split. Because those guys throwing the football with eye black on their skin, yeah, my whole week depends on if they win. Comfort, power, sex, alcohol, religion, pleasure, all good things unless turned into an ultimate thing. Because the problem is that you do what is in your heart and needs to be made new. Because if you don't crush your idols, then your idols will crush you. You know the definition of insanity is doing the same thing, expecting different results. And by that definition, most of us are insane. Because we run to the same filth even though it hurts us yesterday and say, come on, please satisfy me today. And Jesus said, you trying, to great, you trying to gain your life, you'll lose it. You lose your life and you'll gain it. But we've all, tra- we've all traded in the creator for something we've created. Thinking that just because you've got a nice house and a car, you made it. Now realizing if your soul ain't right, you're no different than a fish, bro, because you just got baited. Damn. Because idols, they overpromise and underdeliver. They operate by deceiving. An idol is when you look at something and say, if I have that, then I have meaning. And if we don't put God in his rightful place, we'll put something else there. And so we make good things, God things, God things and then go into despair. And just like Elijah called down the fire and the altar exploded into flames, No, there is only one God that comes through when you need him, and Jesus is his name. Because when you're sick and thirsty, toilet water might be attractive. But if you've got something better, bro, then toilet water looks nasty. Because an idol is dead, it doesn't live. An idol takes, it never gives. So repent, get on your knees, and admit your heart's full of diseases. You know what a true man looks like, then look to Jesus. Thanks, mate. So good, Sammy. So we're going to be talking a little bit about God's call on us to holiness, about the subversion of the church and how we have strayed from that. And right from the outset, I just want to stay. But if you're here today, welcome. Church is meant to be a place 
like a hospital where the sick come and are welcome and that just like a hospital you're not going to stand there and go just ignore your pneumonia ignore your tuberculosis ignore your cancer let's just rejoice in it but church is a place where the great physician Jesus Christ because he loves us more says, I will make you more lovable. I will make you into my image. I'm a consuming fire and I'm going to burn away that dross. And God is a holy God and a holy God he is, and he has called us to a life of holy living. And so when I start talking about some of the sins that we're going to be addressing today, I don't want you to feel like I'm trying to be some Pharisee and saying you've got to get your life right so that God will accept you. All right? I'm saying come to the hospital because we are all sick and we are all sinners here and we are all in desperate need of the love of the Saviour to refine us, to purify us and to shower us in his grace. So I want to say that right from the outset. This is not a place where I'm calling you to be judged and condemned. This is a place where I'm calling you to throw off the shackles of sin and come to freedom. Throw off that which enslaves us because you are a slave to whatever you are bound by. And let's come to the hospital, let's come to the great physician and say, Lord, humble me, heal me, save me. And so we're going to look at Israel and we're going to look and we're going to um, dive right into it. So in Numbers chapter 25, obviously there's 25 chapters that come before that. Basically the story of history, the the history of Israel, if we were to make it a, a playlist on Spotify, it would start off with the song of rebellion, do the wrong thing. It would then be followed by judgment. You've done the wrong thing. It would then be intercession, repentance. Lord, save us. And then mercy, because our God is a merciful, patient God. And then it would just hit repeat. And that's what we see from the time that God calls Abraham, who fails multiple times. 400 years they're in bondage in uh, Egypt, whilst the sins of the Canaanites, of the people in the land of Canaan, are coming to fruition to the point where God says, enough, no more. The only good thing I can do for you now is to wipe you out because you are so rebellious and you are so hard-hearted. So 400 years past, God miraculously pulls Israel out of Egypt. He rips them out with signs and wonders and miracles so that the whole world will know that there is a living God, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And he puts his name over them. He leads them out by the pillar of fire at night and the cloud by day. He baptizes them, as it were, 1 Corinthians 10 says, as they pass through that Red Sea. He gives them the food, the bread of heaven, the manna. He gives them the drink of life, which is the rock, Jesus Christ himself, it says, in this form of communion, and they all partake of it. But then 1 Corinthians says, but with many of them, God was not pleased. And so it then goes on to tell us, so he killed 23,000 of them in the 1 Corinthians passage in one day, overall 24,000 over the entirety, because they continued to complain and grumble and whinge and be disobedient and lose faith and whore after other gods is what the biblical language is. And so we see time and time again, God opens up the earth and crushes and swallows whole rebel, uh, Korah in his rebellion. God sends in serpents to come and kill them and he says the only remedy is to put a serpent up on a post, a bronze serpent that can withstand the fire, the judgment, representative of Jesus Christ. You look to him and you can be saved and that is your only hope. Nations come and attack Israel as they try to pass through their lines and Israel calls out to God and God in his grace and mercy 
fights for them on their behalf and wipes those nations out. And so the other nations are looking on and they see and they, they go, oh, we're next. They're heading in our direction. We are in trouble. And this is where we pick it up in Numbers, um, I think 22 or 23, where the king of Moab, King Balak, calls his wise guys and says, hey, what are we going to do? We have a problem. We have the people of God coming through. We can't fight them. We'll be just like the other kings. And so someone says to him, why don't you go to Balaam? Now, Balaam was this weird sorcerer, prophet, weird character in the Bible, fascinating character study, who it is well known that who he blesses will be blessed. Who he curses, he's cursed. And so he sends his princes with money and they say, Balaam, come and curse these people because we know that you have power and we wanna, we, we've want we got no hope against them otherwise. And he says, okay, yeah, no, God says no. Three times they come and finally God says, just go, you know, you clearly want to do this, but you'll only say what I say. And so Balaam comes there, they set up seven altars and seven sacrifices are made. And Balaam stands up there and he hears the word of the Lord come down. And what does he do? He pronounces blessing after blessing. While Israel's down there in all their complaining and whinging and defiance, God is up there blessing the living daylights out of his people. He says, these are my people and I will bless them. He says, blessed are those... uh, Yeah, sorry, Balaam says, how shall I curse whom God has cursed and how shall I denounce whom the Lord has not denounced? And God pours these rich, beautiful blessings on his people ill-deserving as they are. And then so Balaam goes up to another part and another part. After three times, Balak is saying to Balaam, just shut up. Stop talking. Every time, I'm trying to pay you to bless these people, but God is taking that money away from you because, uh, sorry, to curse these people because you continually bless them. And then Balaam, as he's leaving, says, look, I've got one more prophecy for you. And he goes and lists off all these other nations that God is going to raise up Israel against. But Balaam was greedy for money. Balaam was greedy for honor. And so he, being the scheming scumbag that he was, as he's walking off, we find out this later in Numbers 31 and again in Jude and in 2 Peter chapter 2, it references it. He says to Balaam, <coughs> to Balak rather, gets confusing after a while. What if you send your women in? You see, what if you can make Israel just like your nation, just like all the other nations that they are sent to judge, then you have taken away their very purpose for being. You have taken away their identity and God will have to remove his blessing and replace it with curse. Now, it's interesting when we look at that concept because God's blessing can sometimes look like a bit of a curse. When Israel does the wrong thing, what is the blessed thing to do? It's to actually discipline them. That is the more loving thing to do because we cannot separate God's love from God's wrath because God will always be glorified and how that happens can depend on how we live our lives. And so they come up with this ingenious plan and we read in Numbers chapter 25, verse 1 to 3. It says, Now Israel remained in Acacia Grove, And the people began to commit harlotry with the women of Moab. They invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel was joined to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel. 
Try imagining what it would be like because it seems like it happened really quick. Was it days? Was it weeks? How did it work? And we don't actually know. But the reality of this is that the men of Israel were to be at war. And what were they doing? They were chasing after women. Women who in Exodus, when Moses got the law, the law had specifically spelled it out in black and white. You are not to intermarry. You are not inter, 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 to intermingle. You are to be a pure people, a holy priesthood set apart for my purpose so that the world might be saved, so that the world might see that there is one true God in all the world. The creator God, Yahweh is his name. I am who I am. And they were to be separated. And so God knew that were they to do that, were they to go after these other women, that their hearts would be go after them and they would be led into the idolatry of the land. An idolatry that involved ritual prostitution, that involved gross sexual immorality, that involved sacrifice of their children. And so the men's hearts were stolen away. And the Bible tells us they began whoring after them. Now as far as tactics go, got to give it to Satan, this is a clever thing. And here's the thing, the Bible does not just tell us what happened. The Bible tells us what always happens. The same spirit that was behind the spirit of Baal of Peor was the same spirit that was behind the spirit of Babylon, the same spirit that was behind the kingdom of Rome, and the same spirit that reigns in the world today. Because this is the first thing that we need to understand, church, is that we are in enemy-occupied territory. Israel was down in the plains of Moab with their enemies all around us. Now, the enemies are not our neighbours, not non-Christians, not non-believers. The Bible tells us clearly, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, against people. These people have been taken into bondage. We are to be the liberators of the people in our community that don't know Christ. We wrestle against not flesh and blood, but against the powers, against the principalities that set themselves up in opposition to the kingdom of God. 1 Peter 5 verse 8 and 9 says, Be sober, be vigilant, because your enemy, the the devil, roars around like a prowling lion, seeking whom he can devour. Be steadfast. And so we we need to understand that we are not in peacetime. This, you know, I think of Neville Chamberlain when he walked out of that plane after um, having the conference with Hitler in 1938 with his sham peace document and he held it up and what did he say? I believe it is peace for our time. I'm here to tell you, friends, that until our saviour Jesus Christ comes and sets all things right, it is not peace for our time. Winston Churchill prophetically said to, about, uh, to Neville Chamberlain after he did that, he said, you had the choice between war and dishonour and you chose dishonour and now you shall have war. And so friends, as we come into this scripture today, we need to understand that we are in a battle, a battle of cosmic, cosmic reality, a battle that begins really with the subversion of our, of our church, of our culture, of our holiness and our purity. And that's, that's essentially what King Balak's plan was. Subvert the people, take their hearts away from God and make them just like the world. And so we see the devil play out this plan, even now, for generations it's been going on. But we see to, in order to subvert a culture, 
uh, one interesting chap I was talking, uh, I was listening to as I was doing my research, Yuri Bezmanov, who was an ex-KGB agent, who was talking about how the, the KGB planned to subvert the West. And he said there's basically four steps. It starts with demoralisation, taking away the morals of a society and destroying them. Take away the foundation of what makes us up. So you're looking at relationships, family, speech, marriage, um, the role of the parents, the role of children. You then proceed to destabilisation, crippling the nation's economy, crippling their foundations um, again, and then bring a crisis about such that people go, oh, look, just give us... We'll, we'll give up our freedoms, we'll give up everything, just let things go to normal, and then introduce the new normal, the normalisation stage. And so I just want to take a, a little bit of time talking about how our church is being subverted how the enemy is using his wiles, using his schemes, sending in the Moabite women amongst us in order to subvert us from having a heart that longs for Christ. So it starts off, it starts off young, yeah? The communists, they didn't mind so much if the old ladies would go to their church and just sing their songs, so long as it was a dead place where the Spirit of God was not moving. They can have their religion, they're too old, they're too set in their ways, we won't worry about them. But the kids, we will take the kids. And we'll get in there and we'll get them young and we will influence them. So kids are born into a society where we've set it up so that we idolise our jobs. We idolise our careers. We idolise our own selfish intents and our own social um, priorities over and above that of building relationships with our children so that we are connected with them and able to speak words of life into them. We give them off to the care of the government instead of investing ourselves. They're born into a place where when we send them to school, instead of being taught how to pray and what to, to learn in the Bible, we teach them yoga. We teach them mindfulness and meditation. We don't give them the scriptures. We give them Harry Potter and introduce them to witchcraft and the occult. I remember going into the library at my local library in Melbourne um, not long after the, um, the big Harry Potter uh, explosion and just seeing row after row of how to become a team witch, how to do nice spells, how to basically get involved in witchcraft and this is the environment that our children are growing up in. We then, um, speaking of the library, we have drag queen story time, we have the continual bombardment of the gender agenda, trying to teach kids that God, they are not who God has made them, that they are not who God has ordained. We we change the way we, we even speak to kids. We teach them different words for what love actually is. Instead of saying God is love, we say just love is love. And we put that as an idol in the place of God. Yeah? We change what life is. We talk about the abortion walk. You know, instead of saying that um, murdering a child is murder, we call that pro-choice. Instead of saying family elimination, we call it family clinic family planning clinic. In the same room in a hospital, we can have an ultrasound going on in a baby in the first trimester who's 10 weeks old, and they'll be saying, oh, look at their legs, look at their heart. Oh, I think it's waving to you. How beautiful. What a beautiful baby. And then in the next room in the theatre, they can be sucking that out and say, that's a fetal clump of cells. And so we twist the speech. We change what the narrative is so that we can control people. And then... During, during the Cold War, what did the Russians often use? It was propaganda. They had the Pravda. They had their... This is the only newspaper you can watch. They had their state-sponsored um, TVs. 
Now we have devices in our hands that Stalin would just be frothing at the mouth at if he could have that sort of influence. We have whole institutions, Hollywood, Netflix, that are just designed to change and to corrupt the morality that the Bible teaches. Specifically, this is we are talking engineered deception in order to infiltrate, change the way our minds think, change the way we respond, change the way we act and behave so that bit by bit we see the Moabite women and we go, oh, she's hot, she's nice. And our hearts start to crave after them because we're not satisfied with the things of Christ. And bit by bit, layer by layer, our hearts become hardened. We become deaf to hearing the Holy Spirit's conviction saying, hey, I'm calling you to something greater. I'm calling you to a living relationship with me. And what you are doing is dragging yourself away from me. You're walking in the darkness and you are not taking the light with you. And so we see statistics like this. Between the ages of 3 to 17, 68% of kids will have a mobile phone averaging three hours a day on that screen. That's not including tablets or computers. Dave, do you mind grabbing my drink? <laughs> we see that the average of, of adults, greater than four hours a day on this device, getting programmed, getting this f- constant source of feeding coming in. And then it's no wonder that we see the explosion of things like pornography. Thank you. Dr. Jeffrey Satinover sums up the problem that we're finding our our young people, our middle-aged people, and even our old people, men and women in today, when he says this. With the advent of the computer and smartphone and delivery system for this addictive stimulus has become nearly resistance-free. It is as though we have devised a form of heroin 100 times more powerful than before, usable in the privacy of one's own home, and injected directly through the eyes. It's now available in unlimited supply via a self-replicating distribution network, glorified as art and protected by the Constitution. You see, it's a problem that we all are faced with. Here's a few more statistics just to ram that point home. One in ten visitors to porn sites is under the age of ten. In 2015 alone, so over five years ago now, and don't think it's getting any better, one single website had over 4.3 billion hours of viewing. That's nearly 500,000 years of viewing in the one year. And then you think about what effect that is having on our society, on our culture, on our churches on our mums, on our dads, on our children, getting this drug that literally, literally rewires our brain, fires up these tracks that are designed to yoke you to the screen, that are designed to bind you into slavery, bind after bind after bind, flooding us with guilt and shame, rewiring our minds so that we need To get the same hit, we need more and more stimulus. So it goes from the soft core to the hard core. It goes from stuff that you you shouldn't be looking at anyway to stuff that is illegal. And we wonder why there's so much confusion about 
Am I a boy? Am I a girl? Am I straight? Am I gay? What's going on? Why am I attracted to these strange things? Because more and more our brains are getting bombarded with this stuff that is designed not to conform us into the image of Christ, but to conform us into the image of Satan himself. And he's the father of lies and he's the father of deception. And we are getting sucked in as we learn to justify ourselves and harden our hearts more and more layer after layer as we walk down that track. And I speak like this because I know what it's like because I've been there and I've struggled with this myself. And so I know that this is a deadly, dangerous trap. And it is just like the Israelites chasing after these Moabite women and being subverted, their hearts going for them. And more and more it leads to idolatry, it leads to self-loathing, it leads to guilt and it leads to the opposite of what Christ calls us to. To be sons and daughters of God walking in the purity of his spirit, walking in freedom from bondage. And so when we buy this lie, we see the fruit of it. And what is the fruit of it? Well, convictions of rape under 17 years old have almost doubled in just four years in the UK. The Ministry of Justice states that it is extreme pornography that is fueling this rise. In the USA in 2016, 17 and 18, the biggest age range of people committing sexual assaults are children ages 11 to 15. Let that sink in. Porn, people say, oh, well, it's okay for adults at least, you know, consenting adults, it's fine. Well, it increases marriage infidelity by 300%. Of those who get divorced, porn is labelled as one of the major causative factors in 54% of cases. Porn is not helping your marriage. Porn is destroying your marriage. You're inviting the devil into your bedroom when you do that. And to be clear, the Bible says we are not to engage in this. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 28, it says, But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. 1 Corinthians 6 verse 9 and 10, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. The Bible is not ambiguous about it. And because of that, we're seeing laws come in that are trying to ban this type of teaching from um, the anti-conversion laws in uh, Victoria that are coming through. We're seeing as we respond to this and go, well, maybe we should have some Christian schools that aren't pushing this down our children's throat. Now we're seeing in SA, liberal government bringing in laws to take away the um, schools, private schools' ability to discriminate on base of faith so that We can have people coming in that don't share the Christian ideals of the school and they have to be able to be employed because of fairness. And so the devil finds his ways to work the system. The system is not in our favour. We have all these things that are are working time and time again. When I grew up, I learnt about... I did a little Bible study that talked about Satan's world system. And it was just a really helpful way for me to think about it. There are so many different ways through the media, through our education systems, through our culture, that Satan is trying to get his message into us so that we are not conformed to the image of Christ, but we are swept away, so that we are not like Israel who were called to be a separate holy nation, 
set apart for God's glory to declare his honor and glory to all the nations that everyone might be saved, but rather that we become just like the nations surrounding us, just like the Israelites were becoming like the Moabites as they bowed down and worshipped to Baal of Peor, as they committed sexual immorality time and time again. You might note that the main target in Numbers 25 was the men of the Israelites. The men who were called to take up their armor, to take up their sword and shield and go out and fight and conquer these nations that God had um, commanded them to do. They were the ones who were to protect their family when the other nations came in and slaughtered them. They were the ones to be standing side by side, encouraging each other, saying, we can do this. We have the spirit of God in us. We are the called ones to defend our people. And they were the ones whoring after these Moabite women. They were the ones leading their family into destruction, bringing the judgment of God onto their family. Because the thing is, men, what we do matters and what we do affects not just us, but our wife, our children, our generations. And we will be held account one day when we stand before the throne room of God for what we have done with our life. Are we men who are going to be putting a line in the sand and saying, no more? I will stand on what is right. I will pray. I'll become a person of prayer. I'll become a person who is engaged in the battle, who isn't afraid to take up the spiritual armor of Ephesians 6 and say, devil, no more. You will not shoot your fire if darts at me. I have the sword of the Spirit. I am indwelt with the Holy Spirit of God. No more. I will take a stand. I will honor my marriage, even though sometimes I can get frustrated with my wife. I will fight for it. I will fight for those who have lost their fathers. Because in every single parameter of child wellness, we see in the statistics, kids that do not have a father present suffer. In every single parameter. And so what we need to be doing as children of God, as men of God, is taking up that mantle and saying, we are going to be a church that is set apart, that is holy, that is called, and that isn't afraid to stand up and fill that void. You know, when the uh, Spartans used to go out in battle formation and they would have their phalanx formation. What they used to do is they used to put the younger men, the strong men who were battle hardened, who have fought, who were experienced in the front line because they could then show the younger junior guys, the teenagers, the young adults how it's done and they would stand there and they would hold their line and they would conquer nation after nation. Next up was the younger ones behind them and they would stand there and between them they were wedged between the experienced warriors and the older ones who had been um, fighting for a long time but weren't able to be on the front line but had the courage in their heart to stand, that had the words of inspiration to tell those young men, don't flee, don't turn your back, stand your ground and be strong. And that is how we are to be as children of God in the church. We need our people with passion. We need people that aren't just sitting as a slave in front of their screen all day, day in and day out. Men that just get home and can't be bothered with their family. So they put on the TV that find out what's the next latest thing I can just drown my life out with on Netflix. That are sitting in front, slaves to their screens, looking at porn after porn, thinking the next thing will satisfy me. I'll just look at this and then I'll repent. We need men that are getting engaged, that are on their knees when they wake up in the morning, that are saying, Holy Spirit, fill me. How can I have this responsibility to care for my family, to lead them in the ways of Christ? How can I, Lord, without your Holy Spirit, flood me, empty me, Lord, of myself and fill me with you? We need men that are going to stand in the breach and be counted. When a, when a mother becomes a Christian 
and her family wasn't previously Christian, 17% of the time the family will follow. When a father makes that decision as the head of the house, 93% of the time the rest of the family will follow. We need men who are going to stand and be counted. Part of the devil's plan was to attack the church, to attack Israel and their religion, what God had set up in their law for them to be as people set apart and subvert their hearts so that they went after idols, so that they put other things in the place of God. Now we see that just as Israel was called to be God's chosen people, we are called to be God's chosen people. We are called to share this message of hope, this message of freedom, that we don't have to be in bondage to the prince of the power of this air any longer. But we are seeing that the church, as we know it, is suffering. Some statistics. These are American statistics for this one. But in the year 2000, 45% of people profess to be practicing Christians. Jesus is my Lord, and I'm not ashamed of that. Fast forward 20 years, and that number has now dropped to 25%. Many leaving the church, never to return. In Australia, a study was done a few years ago by the Barna Group, and that showed that of millennials, 38% that are brought up in the church leave, never to return. 32% become nomads. They get disillusioned with the church and leave. 22% would be classified as habitual churchgoers. They do their duty on a Sunday, but their heart is not for the Lord. And only 8% would qualify as what the study titled a resilient disciple, someone whose heart beats after Christ, someone who longs to be in the presence of God, who makes a priority of prayer, who makes a priority of getting this word of God in my life. Only 8%. And so the statement here, friends, is what we are doing is not working. And if what we are doing, as that poem said, is not working, then it is insanity to continue doing the same thing and expect a different result. So church as we know it must change. Now, what is God's remedy? We open up to Numbers chapter 25 and we read on. The Lord said to Moses, Take all the leaders of the people and hang the offenders before the Lord out in the sun, that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. So Moses said to the judges of Israel, Every one of you kill his men who were joined to Baal of Peor. And indeed, one of the children of Israel came and presented to his brethren a Midianite woman in the sight of Moses. And in the sight of all the congregation of the children of Israel who were weeping at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Now when Pinephus the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, saw it, he rose from among the congregation and took a javelin in his hand. And he went after the man of Israel into the tent and thrust both of them through. The man of Israel and the woman through her body. So the plague was stopped among the children of Israel. And those who died in the plague were 24,000. Now, don't worry, folks, I'm not going to advocate any leaders get speared through. (laughs) 
But does that make you uncomfortable? It makes me pretty uncomfortable. And as I said before, we cannot actually separate the love of God from the wrath of God. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. He says, we can ignore even our pleasure, but pain, pain insists on being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our conscience, but he shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. No doubt pain as God's megaphone is a terrible instrument. It may lead to final and unrepented rebellion, but it gives the only opportunity the bad man can have for amendment. It removes the veil and plants the flag of truth in the fortress of the rebel soul. You see, we may wish that God would just leave us as we are, but when we, are, when we, when we want that, we're not asking for more love from God. We're actually asking for less because the more God loves us, the more he's going to refine us into his image. And that's going to hurt. He says, I'm a consuming fire. I'm going to burn away those impurities. And so when we come to him and we're vulnerable and we hold out our arms and we say, Lord, make me in the image of your son, we are asking for pain and it's going to hurt. And that's okay because God is a God of love. And for these people in Israel, their last hope was for God to wake them up. And that took the killing of 24,000 people. 24,000 people of the camp who were already condemned because of their rebellion when they refused to enter the land that God had promised them. 40 years, he said, you will roam and every one of you will die in the wilderness. And so this plague comes through and starts killing them and killing them. The people see this and those whose hearts are still soft, they get on their knees before God and they're in the tabernacle where the, the very presence of God comes down, the smoke by day and the fire by night. And they're weeping and they're wailing and they're repenting. And in strolls a guy that we learn later on in the chapter, Zimri, with his arm around a woman called Cosby. Now, Zimri was a leader of the Simeonites, a leader who was meant to be teaching his people. The Bible just said, when you wake up, teach your children about me. When you go to sleep, when you walk through the door, teach them about my ways. And here he is showing his family that it's okay to prostitute yourself with this Moabite woman. It's okay to yoke yourselves to Baal of Peor. And he does this, and he does this with a particular callousness that as he walks past these people, they know exactly what he's going in the tent to do with this woman. And Pinafas grabs a spear and he's filled with zeal. He's filled with this holy fury. This zeal has burned him up. And he comes in and he thrusts them through and God stops that. Now this is a terrifying thing. Because as I said before, I know what it is like to struggle with sin. And if you are struggling with sin, you are so welcome here. We are all welcome here. We are all welcome to come and repent and give that to Jesus because he is the only one that can actually free us from it. But for me, the most terrifying thing I found was as years went by and time and time again, I would do that which I didn't want to do. I'd look at some porn on the, on the screen and go, oh, why have I done that? And then repent and then maybe for weeks I'd have the self-control and the will to not. And then slowly this little nagging in the ears, this little justification of, oh, it's been a long time. You could just look at something and just get that little ding. Time and time again, repent. Repeat, repent, repeat. And time and time again, I found my heart is getting hard. All of a sudden, I can do what I used to be loath to do. And then I realized, God, I'm in the process of layering my heart thicker and thicker 
and thicker. And your Holy Spirit is getting dimmer and dimmer and dimmer. And if I continue down this path, there is only one way for me, and that is destruction. Destruction for myself, destruction for my wife, destruction for my family. And God, I don't want this. God, I read about your freedom and I read about, you know, this liberty that you've brought to the sons and children of God. And Lord, I am walking down this. I'm hardening my heart just as Zimri walked through with Cosby with this hardness of his heart. And I said, Lord, save me. Who will save me from myself? Romans 7, wretched man that I am. Why do I keep on doing that which I don't want to do? And I've read lots of books. I've been to different courses. Valiant Man, great course. And some of that is really helpful and I recommend it. But at the end of the day, God does not call us to this pharisaical, these are the rules, you must live this certain way and then God will be happy with you if you step out of line. Look out! I'm watching you. That's what the Pharisees did. And they opposed Jesus more than anybody else. Jesus called them whitewashed tombs. You look nice on the outside, but on the inside you are dead, you are decaying, you are rotting. And so he doesn't call us to a religion of works. He doesn't call us to a religion of legalism. He doesn't call us to any of that. What does he do? He calls us to a relationship with him. He calls us not to put away our passions, but for our greatest and deepest passions, to be passions for him. And so I found myself on my knees in my room crying and going, God, God, I'm going down this path. I'm going to die. Lord, if you don't intervene, what have I got? Lord, I want more of you and I want less of me. Holy Spirit, unless you do a work here, unless you make my first love you and you make all that other stuff just seem like vomit, Lord, I've got no hope. But praise God. He's a God that loves to answer that. He's a God that loves it when we are on our knees and when we repent and when we say, God, what am I to do if not for you? Either you are real and that's wonderful. Either Jesus rose from the dead and is sitting at the right hand of God right now interceding on our behalf or he didn't. But friends, I'm here to tell you that Jesus Christ is living and active. He sent his Holy Spirit to be part of us. And when we hunger and thirst for him more than we hunger and thirst for food and water when we ask for him to come and fill us he is good to his promise and there is nothing else that is going to save us from our sin there is nothing else but the gift of God his grace his mercy and his indwelling of his Holy Spirit and when we get on our knees when we repent and we call sin for what it is when we don't try to hide it when we don't try to rationalize it away See, one of the other statistics is that 40% of Christians that regularly look at porn have no issue with it. They have become hardened of heart. John 12 talks about how the people of Israel hardened themselves so that they would not believe. And then it says, so God condemned them. God judged them so that they could not believe. And some of you here today are in danger of doing the exact same thing, of hardening your heart to the point where you can no longer repent. And my cry to you is, wake up, get on your knees and repent. This is what we are called to as a church, to walk in holiness, in honesty, in integrity, in the spirit, by the Holy Spirit's power. And that we need to stop and we need to turn off that which is continually feeding us. For me, my pathway to, to triumph over this and um, to have victory, to know what it is to be free from these addictions 
came when I got rid of Netflix. I got rid of those things that are constantly triggering. I deleted my social media. Sometimes if what we're doing isn't working, we need to take drastic change. What God commanded the Israelites to do was a dramatic thing. Kill all your leaders that have bound themselves to the Moabite women. Jesus wasn't kidding when he said, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It was metaphorical, but he wasn't kidding. Don't cut off your hand. He's saying, treat sin as the deadly disease that it is. Come to me and be made new. Endure hardship. To Timothy, Paul says, endure hardship like a soldier. How many of us are worshipping the God of comfort? How many of us can't be bothered to get up in the morning to pray, to start off the day right? How many of us can't be bothered? How many of us don't even know that this is a sword? That this is a weapon that God has given us to fight the principalities and the powers. How many of us don't know what it is to walk in that spirit, to take up the armour of God, to have the helmet of salvation girding our head, to have the breastplate of righteousness, to know that when the devil comes and says, you are guilty, you are shameful, you keep doing this sin over and over again, to say back to the devil, I have the breastplate of righteousness. If the sun sets me free, I am free indeed. When the Bible talks about me, it talks about me as the righteousness of God. Because if the Spirit of God is living in me, then sin is dead. I have died to sin and I'm alive to Christ. I'm a new creation. The devil has nothing on me. You can go to hell, devil. Because I I am a child of God and I've been made pure. Even though my old self does sin, I am pure and righteous and holy and I can come before God confident and unashamed before Him as His child and I can sit on His knee and not be fearful because God loves us so much that He sent His one and only Son that we might inherit eternal life, that we might become that righteousness of God. And so there is no, there is no easy five-step pathway to freedom all right let's just dispel that now there are things that are very helpful but there is no five-step 12-step whatever step pathway it is abiding in Christ God has not given us a formula because he has given us a person in Christ God has not given us a formula because he has given us his Holy Spirit and if we can do it on our own we will do it on our own trust me I've tried I'm one of the most disciplined people around. I love study. I love discipline. I get up early in the mornings. That's fine. I'm happy to do everything. But it's not enough. If the Holy Spirit is not our first love, if the Holy Spirit is not the passion that burns inside of us, that it's not that the thing that we think of when we first wake up. It's not enough and it'll never be enough. Until we learn what it means when Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches, abide in me and I will abide in you. We are never going to overcome this stuff. And so I want to encourage you, friends, let's fight the good fight. Let's have a time where we can be real with each other. Let's get around each other and be open and vulnerable. You know, for me, one of the things that helped the most was when I realized I'm going down this path was to get around some godly men who I knew would keep me account and say, listen, I've been doing this stuff that I'm so ashamed of. And I want to confess that to you as a brother. And I want to ask for you to stand by me, to pray over me, and to hold me to account. And so these men got around me and they prayed for me. And that was the beginning of my path to victory. And so if you don't have someone around you that's going to fire you up, that's going to call you to holiness, that's going to call you to this living, vibrant relationship with Christ, then get some. 
Get around it. Get into a small group. Come along to Awaken. We're starting in a couple of weeks, February 6th. Um, probably no one else knows that because we've just decided. <laughs> but this is an opportunity for you to get alongside people that are just saying, God, I love you. Help me to love you. God, I want a passion for you. Give me that white hot burning passion that wakes me up in the night, that wakes me up in two in the morning and just says, oh, I just want to be in your presence. I just want to be on my knees and experiencing the ecstasy of the presence of the holy God almighty. We are the, often, it's said that we are the sum of the five people that we are closest to. Who are the people that we are getting around? And are we being that person to others? Are we firing each other up? All the more as we see the day approaching. So friends, I want to leave you with this. We're about to enter a time and the band can come up. Just where we just want to sit in this moment. Dave preached a wonderful sermon about four weeks ago where he called us to be a people of repentance. And I want to just sit in this moment. I want us to be able to have an opportunity to respond. Where, whether where you are, you can kneel, you can stand, whatever you want. You can come and kneel at the front and you can pray and you can repent. And sometimes, just like the people of Israel who were weeping and wailing by the tent of meeting at what they, they had done, at the way they had prostituted themselves, at the way they had allowed themselves to be subverted, sometimes we need a good weep and wail. We need a good repentance. And I want to say to you guys, if you don't know Jesus, then I'd love to share Jesus more with you. If you don't know what it is to walk in that freedom, if you're still carrying this guilt, this burden that weighs you down, I know what that's like. It's horrible. It's depressing. There's a reason that suicide is going out of control. Between the ages of 15 to 44, you are the most dangerous person to yourself. That is the number one killer. Something is not right. We are carrying a burden that Christ came to Calvary to take for us. And we are not to be continuing walking in this. And so if you want freedom, let's come and pray together. Let's cry together. Let's weep together. Let's repent and be people that have soft hearts, that aren't afraid to say, yeah, I've stuffed up. But Jesus is my Redeemer. Jesus is my salvation. He is my righteousness. And now I can stand before God confident and unashamed and declared as the righteousness of God. There is liberty in being the children of God, friends. And if you don't know that, then let's pray together. Let's get on our knees and let's make this happen. You know, there is a fire that is flickering in this place, in so many hearts. Let's fan that into flame and let's just see ourselves submitted wholly and fully to the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's do this, guys. Let's not just keep walking and doing the same thing over and over again. Let's not sit our butts in our chairs and go, yes, that's nice, that's nice, and then go away and forget that it ever happened. Because that is our human nature, is it not? How many times have you gone, yeah, I'll I'll do that, and then you find moments passed and you forget it all. James calls us this. He says, adulterers and adulteresses, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously. He loves us with a passion. And he doesn't want us polluting ourselves with all this stuff that the devil would come in to steal our joy. The devil comes to steal, kill and destroy. But I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. He lives in us. He says, let me be 
in your body. May you be the temple of the Holy Spirit. He dwells in us and, um, and yearns jealously. But He gives more grace. This is not a message of condemnation. He gives more grace over and over again, though we fall. One of my favourite passages is Psalm 37. It says, The steps of a righteous man are ordered by the Lord. Though he may fall, the Lord upholds him with his hand, and he will not be utterly cast down. Our God is mighty to save. Therefore, submit to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God. This is a promise. And he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. He's talking to all of us here. Lament, mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. Let's stand and worship, guys. Let's kneel and bow and repent and weep and wail. If you're a prayer, come on out. If you just want to worship with us, come on over. This is not the time to sit mindlessly in your seat. This is the time to engage in what the Holy Spirit is doing and just submit and humble ourselves before Him. You've been listening to a sermon from Hills Baptist Church. To find out more or to hear other great content, Find us at hillsbaptist.com or on your podcast app.